Good morning, Clyde Christian Bible Church. Again, this is very weird, and we miss you very much, but this is kind of the best we can do uh, with the technology we have and with uh, the need to keep people safe. So week two of our uh, quarantine worship services uh, features a couple songs that reflect on God's glory. That's really going to be the major theme of the sermon, is God's glory. And so we have a couple songs, Lord, Let Your Glory Fall and Better Is One Day, that really reflect on being in God's presence and how glorious that presence is. So we're going to start with Lord, Let Your Glory Fall.
Growing up, I watched a lot of action movies. Spy movies, martial arts movies, shoot 'em up movies, and especially Star Wars. I loved Star Wars. I spent a lot of time pretending that I was the hero of any one of those films. I dive around the basement floor pretending to shoot bad guys or climb trees and pretend to spy on my brothers. Maybe pretend to lobby sniper fire at them. Maybe fire Han Solo's imaginary laser blasters at them. I was forever targeting Russian terrorists and Middle Eastern extremists and traitorous spies and stormtroopers, all the bad guys from all these movies, battling them across the lawn and through the woods and around the house. Usually by myself, which is an extra layer of pathetic now that I really consider it. But the appeal of those movies to a small, wimpy, imaginative preteen like myself was obvious. I wanted to have the one-liners of Schwarzenegger, the sophistication of Bond, the lightning-quick martial arts athleticism of Jackie Chan, the rags-to-riches storyline of Luke Skywalker, the reluctant, tough-guy, anti-hero cool of Han Solo. All of that appealed to the young Chris Lance. They all had something I wished I could emulate in my own uncomfortable adolescent self. But in all those action movies, and all the one-dimensional good-guy heroism, there was only ever one guy I wanted to be. I wanted to be cool like Bond or Han Solo. I wanted to be masculine like Arnie. I wanted to be brave like Luke. But I never really wanted to become them. But my favorite action hero of all time is the guy that I did want to become. Growing up, I wanted to be... Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford's coolest film role. Sorry, Han Solo. It's, it's just true. To me, Indiana Jones was always and probably always will be the pinnacle of what a cool action hero should be. He had the one-liners, he had the handsome sophistication, he had the incredible theme song. It's great. He had the style. No one else could pull off a leather jacket and fedora and scruffy adventurous half-beard like Indy. He had a cool weapon, a whip. How practical is that? I can't tell you how many pieces of twine I imagined swinging over booby traps with before snapping it at some random imagined Nazi and fleeing to a granary. But over and above all these physical elements, Indiana Jones topped all other action heroes with his intellect. He wasn't a government-trained spy or a muscle-bound ex-commando or even a particularly gifted fighter. Instead, he was an archaeologist. An archaeologist! An archaeologist who knew how to give and take a punch, but an academic, a scholar, well-versed in all kinds of ancient mythology and theology and anthropology. He used his brain as much as his biceps, and that had great appeal to a thin, bookish teenager like myself. Indiana Jones was my hero. And Indiana Jones was certainly a good guy. He fought obvious bad guys. In Temple of Doom, he fought a cult that wanted to steal your still-beating heart from your chest and sacrifice you to some primeval death god and turn you into a zombie slave. In the third movie, The Last Crusade, he fought ruthless businessmen who sought holy relics for purely selfish gains that would grant immortality, the, the Holy Grail. But most commonly, Indiana Jones faced off against the baddest of all bad guys, Nazis. He was constantly punching or fleeing or shooting at or getting shot at by some poor schmuck with a swastika. It wasn't hard to know who the good guys and the bad guys were in those movies. Indy was always the last brave, brilliant, righteous hero standing between good and world-conquering evil. And the cinematic stand-in for world-conquering evil is always Nazis. Indiana Jones, my hero. I'll take any excuse to talk about Indiana Jones, but there's a legitimate reason why we're discussing my favorite fictional action hero today. 
The title of this sermon is a blatant reference to the first and best Indiana Jones movie, 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that movie, Indy is of course battling Nazis, but this time, the Nazis are seeking to get their hands on something powerful, holy, and unique, something they feel will be the instrument they need on their side to propel them forward into unstoppable world domination, the Ark of the Covenant. The same Ark of the Covenant that will feature prominently in our next few sermons as we continue journeying journeying through 1 Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant was a very real and very sacred Old Testament relic. In fact, it was arguably the most sacred of all the relics God had commanded his new people, the Israelites, to build following the exodus from Egypt. For the several hundred years from the time of the exodus until the time of the kings, which we're just starting to get into by 1 Samuel, all of Israel's religious life circled around the tabernacle a mobile tent which God filled with his presence. The tabernacle was where Israelites offered sacrifices and offerings. Inside the tabernacle was the holy place where priests would perform sacred duties. In the holy place was a lamp, a table, and some bread. But inside the holy place was a second separate room called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, which was curtained off from everyone except the Most High Priest. Eli, whom we met several weeks ago, was the most high priest in the time of Hannah and young Samuel. He alone would be permitted into the Holy of Holies under penalty of death. And inside the Holy of Holies was only one thing. You guessed it, the Ark of the Covenant. It was shielded from view because of the astounding amount of holy worth assigned to it. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the filmmakers of Indiana Jones did a pretty good job recreating it. It's a simple thing, a box about four feet long by two feet wide and two feet high, covered in gold. The most impressive thing about it was its lid, which featured two solid gold cherubim, or winged angel creatures, bowing toward each other. Inside the ark were a few particularly sacred items. First, the tablets of the covenantal law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, then later Aaron's staff and some samples of manna. It was a small, simple thing, but the physical properties were completely dwarfed by its spiritual significance. See, the Holy of Holies, inside the holy place, inside the tabernacle, was to be seen as the throne room of Almighty Yahweh. And seated between the cherubim, on his small golden throne, was the invisible glory of God himself. The tabernacle represented the presence of God, and the Ark of the Covenant was the very throne of that glorious sovereign presence. The Ark of the Covenant led Moses and the Israelites into battle as they wandered in the desert and would be the agent of Jericho's destruction as God's people entered the Holy Land in the book of Joshua. Wherever God commanded his people to go, they would be led by the Ark of the Covenant and God would grant his people victory. That was the formula. Israel, the good guys, would follow the Ark of the Covenant and claim victorious domination over the bad guys, claiming land in the process. Of course, it's a lot more theologically complex than that, but that's the basic picture. Good guys have the Ark, and by extension the blessings of the gods seated upon it. Bad guys battle in vain and fall before the mighty presence of the Ark. It's very simple, like the Ark itself. So you can see why the Nazis wanted it so bad in Indiana Jones. And by the way, there's at least a a shred of historical truth to that fictional plot, Apparently Hitler really did want to get his hands on the Ark of the Covenant, which is ironic because, you know, it's very, very Jewish. But let's put that aside for now. We're going to read 1 Samuel 4. At this point in the narrative of the books of Samuel, both Israel and their rivals, the militarily and technologically superior Philistines, are facing the same questions as Indiana Jones and the Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
In 1 Samuel 4, there are raiders, and there's the ark. And the question is the, is the same. Where is God? Who will God side with? Go ahead and pause the podcast so you can grab a Bible and read along. I'll just hum the Indiana Jones theme song while you do that. All right. Let's read up to verse 11. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Man, what an emotional roller coaster. First, Israel rides the wave of victory. They're going out to fight the Philistines. Surely God will be with them, but just as soon as they ride that hill, then they tumble down the next hill of defeat, losing big to their powerful neighbors. So they muster the Ark of the Covenant, which had always been a sort of assurance of victory. Up the hill they go, up the hill of triumph. Even the pagan Philistines know the power of this sacred relic, and they fear that they will be the new Egypt a powerful nation that dominates Israel, as Philistia had for about 200 years, but will crumble when Israel's God shows up. Miracles, plagues, the whole nine yards, they're afraid of all of it. But unexpectedly, the fear within Israel's enemies doesn't lead them to wavering, as in the times of Moses and Joshua and the judges. Instead, the fear of the Philistines causes them to double down on their resolve, and they fight all the more furiously in the face of this new divine threat, And their victory, the Philistines' victory, is absolute. Israel plummets down a massive hill of crushing defeat. Let's read the rest of this tragic chapter. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head, which is the sort of national sign of mourning in that culture. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was ninety-eight years old and whose eyes were set so they could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What has happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. 
When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and very heavy. He had led Israel for forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son, which is the highest joy an Israelite woman could experience in those days, to give birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. That is the conclusion to part one of the Ark narrative, which encompasses 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 7. So we just finished chapter 4. That's part one of the Ark narrative. Raiders and the Ark. The whole scene is one of absolute tragedy. In fact, this story marked the lowest point in Israel's history since their enslavement in Egypt. For hundreds of years since their enslavement in Egypt, this was their lowest point. No story in all of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, or Judges is as crushing to Israel's national identity as the day they lost the Ark of the Covenant. It's as if we had lost to the Americans in the Olympic gold medal hockey game in Vancouver 2010. Everything they held as sacred, everything they presupposed about their identity as a nation, was throttled at the hands of their most hated rival. You can hear it in the escalation of the Benjamites' news as he relates it to Eli, the high priest. Things get progressively worse in verse 17. First, the Israelites are forced to flee from their enemies. That's always a bad look when the Sovereign Lord is supposed to be on your side. Then there was a great slaughter and many Israelite men fell. Then, Hophni and Phinehas, religious leaders of Israel, and Eli's own sons are reported to have died in the battle. But that's not the most devastating news to Eli. The death of his sons isn't what shocks and disturbs him so much that he falls out of his chair and plummets to his death. Rather, the news that fells Eli for good is the news that the filthy Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant. The raiders had claimed the Ark. The Nazis are cracking open the lid, and all Indiana Jones can do is watch in horror. As Walter Brueggemann writes, Eli's response of grief doesn't concern his sons, but the Ark. It's the Ark that matters. The ark embodied the faithful presence of Yahweh. Eli had staked his life and his faith on the power of the ark and the God who sojourned with it. Now the ark is gone, and with it Eli's pure conviction about the presence and fidelity of Yahweh. If the ark has failed, Yahweh is absent, and Israel is bereft. End quote. It's powerful stuff. But of course the text doesn't make all that pain and identity crisis clear in the story of Eli's death. Instead, it's once again a woman who speaks for all Israel, as Hannah had back in her song at the start of chapter 2. This unnamed woman, Eli's daughter-in-law, is in a reverse situation to Hannah. With the birth of her son doesn't come triumph and praise as it did for Hannah, but rather despair and heavy questions about the future of their people. As with Eli and the news of his sons, this dying woman doesn't grieve because her baby boy will grow up without a father, uncle, grandparent, and mother who've all died on the exact same day. That's not what causes her to despair. Instead, her despair for her son is rooted in the hopelessness she feels of him growing up in a world without God's presence. The brutal name that she gives her son gives voice to the deepest fears of every person in Israel after the capture of the ark. Where is God's glory? 
the glory is gone. And Ichabod can mean either of those things. Kabod is the Hebrew word for glory. The I at the beginning is either a prefix that negates what comes before it, sort of like our prefixes, non or un, that's what the I can mean, or else it's a prefix that signifies that what follows is in the form of a question. It can be either of those things. So Ichabod can either be translated, where is the glory, or simply, no glory. No glory here, it is gone, because God himself and the throne he sat on is gone, captured by the raiders. It's an utterly heartbreaking scene. One baby born to one woman in the fallen line of one priestly household. They experience a personal tragedy that mirrors the existential suffering of an entire nation. But our question for today isn't, where is the glory? Our question is, why did the glory depart? The Ark of the Covenant is long gone for us. Unless the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark is accurate and it's being stored anonymously in a massive storehouse of ancient artifacts but I doubt it. We don't have the ark anymore. We don't need to concern ourselves with God's presence around a fancy little box and a fancy little tent. But we do need to concern ourselves with what caused this great national crisis. And we need to ask if there are ramifications for ourselves. What does it mean that the bad guys, quote unquote, won, and the good guys lost, even though the good guys made all the right moves? If God can abandon the ark and abandon his nation Israel, can God abandon us? To begin examining the question about why this happened, it's helpful to remember what we know about some of the named characters involved. We're going to have a Dora the Explorer moment as I ask you questions and assume you're shouting out the right answers from the comfort of your home. So, first question. Who were the two priests accompanying the Ark of the Covenant into battle? That's right, Hophni and Phineas. Excelente. Second question. From what we know about these two scoundrels, were they worthy to be leading the Ark of the Covenant into battle? No! Great job! As we saw a couple weeks ago, Hophni and Phinehas, sons of the high priest, were terrible leaders, guided more by selfish desires than their desire to serve Yahweh. They stole food that was supposed to be dedicated to God, and they slept with the women who served at the tabernacle. They had nothing but disdain for God and his holy things. And because of this... God had told Eli that his sons would die a terrible death, and that would be the end of the house of Eli's leadership over Israel. Well, God's words are proven true. All right, third and final question, faithful listener. If you were God, and these corrupt, vile, self-obsessed, utterly unworthy priests were trotting out your holy throne like a magic wand, would you dignify the whole charade by showing up and granting victory? That's right. No, you wouldn't. And that right there is the key to unlock the question about why God deserted the battle. Really, it isn't God who deserted Israel. It's Israel who had deserted God. This chapter may be in the book of 1 Samuel, but as I mentioned, historically it reflects the end of the time of the Judges. In the book of Judges, Israel was a ragtag collection of factions and tribes, loosely united by worship of Yahweh at the tabernacle. But the pattern of Israel's history in the time of the Judges was very ugly. They would ignore God and start worshipping neighboring idols and commit other great evils. So God would hand them over to neighboring nations who would dominate them, oppress them. For the previous couple hundred years, including the time of Samson the judge, the more advanced Philistines had been that dominating nation, a constant thorn in Israel's side. Then, 
after handing them over to the, this neighboring nation, in this case the Philistines, the Israelites would finally repent of their sin and call out to God to save them from their oppressors, as they had in Egypt. And God would hear them, raising up a mighty hero or judge to save his people and deliver them from their enemies. But then they'd grow complacent, forget about their covenant with God, and the cycle would repeat over and over and over. Well, the Ark narrative of 1 Samuel 4-7 is the last of those ugly cycles, which would officially conclude when Israel was given kings. Except, here's the thing, it didn't stop with the kings. In fact, this brutal cycle has never stopped. God's people are still prone to turn from God, give up on the life he calls us to, and fall to the world around us. Maybe it's the love of money, or worship of self, or suffering under global pandemics. There's lots of reasons why people turn from God. It wasn't just a cycle in the book of Judges or the Old Testament as a whole. Rather, it's a cycle that we find ourselves trapped in all the time as well. It's a cycle so strong that it took a savior to break. But let's get back to 1 Samuel. Why was the Ark of the Covenant void of God's power? Why did God's glory not go ahead of them and lay low their enemies? Why didn't the Ark bring victory as it had so frequently in Israel's history? Well, because, again, it was not God who had abandoned his people. He removed his glory and power because they had abandoned him. And it begins at the top, as it always does. It begins with leadership. That's why God is so harsh to Eli regarding his two sons. They were a virus of corruption and selfishness that God needed to immunize his people against. And immunizations make you sick before they make you healthy. Israel had to take its medicine. Hophni and Phinehas had led all of Israel into absolute disregard for the holy things and the holy life that was supposed to be their entire identity. The Israelites, they weren't special. They weren't strong. They were simply servants of the special one who is strong. Take their initial response to the first lost battle, for example. They had lost without the Ark of the Covenant. So the leaders of Israel put their heads together and come up with a plan. They will recreate the holy wars of Moses and Joshua from years past. They'll trot out their fancy God box like it's some secret talisman. They're trying to force God's hand into victory by mere muscle memory. They have a prophet in their midst, Samuel, whom they could have consulted about God's will. Or at least they should have done as their forefathers in the time of Judges had done. They should have repented and shown remorse for their waywardness and corruption. Instead, they just blaze ahead with their own selfish plan. The irony is that the Philistines can read the situation. They know that the ark represents fear before the glory of God. But the Israelites, who had long been the beneficiaries of that power, had no such respect for his glory. Their leaders had cheapened it, and the ark became a toothless totem to past victories. It became their idol. They put their trust in the means of their covenant relationship with God, the ark, rather than putting their faith in the God that the whole thing points to. They assumed that they were the good guys, because historically they had been the recipients of his grace and glory. But here, they failed to include him in the proceedings. It was empty ritual, with no respect for the awesome power of the Almighty God in their midst. They attempted to manipulate God into victory by parading around his fancy ornaments. But they had no heart of love, no mind for repentance, no desire for God to gain the glory. They only wanted glory for themselves. And because of that, Ichabod, where is the glory? There is no glory. Your corruption, your desire to serve yourself, your inattention to the God who calls and shapes and loves you, all of it means that God has left you on your own. 
not forever, of course, a God-honoring prophet is in their midst and he will soon steer the people back to him. Plus, as we'll see next week, it's not like the Philistines received the glory of God either. But Israel's defeat with the ark was worse than their defeat without the ark because they had abandoned their God. 1 Samuel 4 is a powerful reminder that God doesn't abandon his people, we abandon him. We take his goodness and his grace for granted. We trot out holy things like magic wands and think they're sufficient to save us. Bible verses, communion cups, baptism tanks, worship songs, weekly church services, or at least weekly podcast listenings. Saying good things and doing good things and being good people. But if God isn't at the heart of it, if God isn't getting the glory, if all that ritual makes us self-righteous instead of humbly reliant on Almighty God, then we too will face Ichabod. We too will wonder where he is. We too will be toppled for our corruption, like Eli. We too will try to save ourselves to no avail, like the elders of Israel. We too will be left holding an empty box while the glory patiently stands aside, waiting for us to call out and come back to it. God cannot be bartered or bought. He cannot be persuaded or possessed. He cannot be tamed or trained. He is a sovereign God, and he does not belong only to one people group. He cannot become merely an ornamental design, like a rubber stamp on our own selfish desires. He will topple faithless institutions as he did to Eli's household. He will subvert faithless pursuits as he did to Israel. If he isn't in it, and if we aren't in it for his glory, then he has every right to remove himself. Indiana Jones was the good guy, and the Nazis were the bad guys. It was clear as day. But that's fiction. In real life, those lines get blurred, as they did in 1 Samuel 4. There, the good guys made themselves the enemies of the one true good guy. They abandoned him. He's waiting for them to come back to him. As soon as they humble themselves and repent, he will empower them once again. But for now, here, in the darkest chapter of their pre-monarchy history, Israel needed to realize the ugliness of their self-reliance. They needed to feel the cold sting of his glory being removed. They needed to long for relationship over ritual once again. I wonder, what glory do we rob from God? How much do we rely on past successes? How much more could we be trusting the Almighty God who loves us, empowers us, and delivers us from our greatest enemies, not Philistines or even Nazis, but enemies like fear and death and ourselves? Those are pretty heavy questions, but I think it's important to ask them. Stay tuned next week to hear what happens to Indiana Jones after the Nazis open the Ark of the Covenant, and stay tuned to hear what happens to the Philistines now that God's glorious golden box is in their possession, and find out how long God keeps his glorious presence from his people. Spoiler alert, it's not for long. We aren't the good guys, Clyde Christian Bible Church. We aren't the heroes, but we know the one who is. Our call is to remain in him, and he will remain in us, and we don't even need a fedora and a whip. Let's pray. God, this is a hard story to read. It's hard to hear that your people can gain and lose your glory, gain and lose your presence. Father, we know that you are very reluctant to do so, that you're so patient with us. And so I pray that we would always be attuned to your goodness and to your glory. I pray that we would always be seeking your will and seeking your glory. Help us to be a people who truly seek after you, to seek your holy things, not just to be self-righteous, not just to wave them in front of us and expect 
to win all the time. Help us to be a, pe- a people who put our trust in you, Father. That's true, not just in the middle of a pandemic. That's true at all times. Help us to put our trust in you, to be your people who seek your glory. We know that the answer to the question of Ichabod, where is your glory, is your glory is right here. It is in us. It is with us. Even though we're apart from one another, your glory is with us. We praise you, Jesus, for making that possible. Help us to remain in you. We know that you will remain in us. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. As mentioned, we have a couple songs that reflect on God's glory. We're going to close with Better Is One Day, which I think is a really beautiful way to draw us from God has taken his glory away. Well, no, he hasn't. His glory is right here with us. We are in the presence of his glory and how great that glory really is. But this is Better Is One Day.
So have a great week, everyone. We love you. We miss you. Um, Stay safe. Stay healthy. If you need anything, please contact me at any time, and I'd be happy to help. All right. Have a great week. The good guys made themselves the enemies of the one true good guy. Dun, 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 dun. Excelente.